0: Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Teibel, and I'm joining you all from the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Allie Bernison.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm Allie, and I am joining you from Los Angeles, California. By the way, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor and rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you listen. Uh, so this week we have a great, great conversation that I cannot wait to share with you guys. Um, we are chatting with the co-founders of the peacemaking organization, the Telos group, Greg Khalil and Todd Dethridge. Before founding the Telos group, Greg lived in Ramallah, the West Bank where he advised the Palestinian leadership on peace negotiations with Israel. Although Greg was born and raised in San Diego, California, much of his extended family still lives in Beit Sahour. He has lectured widely on the Middle East and has been published by the Review of Faith and International Affairs and the New York Times. He is also an adjunct professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Todd spent 16 years in senior positions in the legislative and executive branches of the U.S. government before co-founding the TELOS Group. From 2005 to 2009, he was chief of staff in the Secretary of State's Office of Policy Planning at the U.S. State Department. He also spent two years as senior advisor in the department's Office of International Religious Freedom, where he specialized in religious freedom in the Middle East. Todd worked for a decade in the U.S. Congress, including six years as Chief of Staff to Senator Tim Hutchinson. He is a native Arkansan and a graduate of the University of Arkansas. He began his career as an educator, and he and his family live in Fairfax County, Virginia. Quite lengthy bios there, um, but there's definitely nothing that could be left out because they're both such accomplished um, and incredible individuals.
0: Well, welcome, Greg and Todd. We're so excited and honored to have you with us on the podcast and wondering if you would mind sharing a bit about yourselves and your journeys of getting to where you are today as the leaders of the Telos Group, um, this incredible peacemaking organization. And yeah, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about how you got to where you are today, that would be awesome.
2: Um, sure. This is Greg. Uh, Becca, it's such an honor to be with um, you and Ali. Really inspired by you and your work as well. Todd and I actually um, met first back in 2004 in Jerusalem, and um, I was a young lawyer advising Palestinian leadership on negotiations, and Todd was uh, at the State Department, um, U.S. State Department, and um, uh, we met in a professional capacity. I uh, and a colleague took Todd around as he was working on a report for the State Department about um, uh, the wall that Israel was building around that time uh, in and around Jerusalem and the, the West Bank. Um, and so that was our, our initial initial meeting. And we could not have foretold what would happen many, many years later. But long story short um, is uh, you know, some years later, I would witnessed a lot of folks like Todd have these really incredible transformations on the ground in Israel-Palestine when they kept, came and saw the realities and had conversations with people, not these sort of like talking point back and forth battles that you see on the cable news networks. And I had an idea of, you know, like, well, if what we really needed is a different conversation around Israel-Palestine in America... Um, obviously need many things related to that conflict. What if we actually enabled many people to have the experiences that Todd had, where he saw a different reality, had a life-changing experience? Um, and then what if we started weaving those personal transformations into something communal, into real movement, whether in Israel, Palestine or elsewhere, to really put people front and center and to really build movements that said, hey, we're all created equal. That means something. And so we're going to do something about it. So I was back in D.C. I shared a little bit about that idea with Todd. And to my surprise, um, Todd didn't think it was a stupid idea. In fact, um, Todd, as I recall, you had a you'd had a similar idea. Yeah, I mean, I'd come at this from a very different place. Um,
3: but I had I grew up in, in down south in Arkansas. gotten involved in Republican politics, worked on Capitol Hill, was a political pony in the Bush administration when I met Greg in Jerusalem, uh, and so I had my own kind of backstory as uh, as a way to think about Israel and Israeli Palestinian conflict. Um, that was, you know, shaped by those experiences. But when I began to really work on this um, in in the State Department and looking at the U.S. interests, looking at U.S. Uh, how how to sort of live out U.S. values there, uh, also at the same time as a Christian, I was going on a sort of deeper faith journey and trying to sort of make sense of the world in in that way too. Um, and it just really hit me very clearly that that. Uh, Christians cared a lot about what was going on there, but not necessarily in ways that were making things better really for anybody in the long run. But what what would it look like to do that differently? Uh, And what would it look like as I began to think about that to have some, you know, to to invite other Christians into that conversation? So those are some conversations I was having in my own small circle and just some things I was thinking about internally And, um, and a lot of that started, uh, you know, even with that first experience when I met Greg and the, the day that he gave to me on my very first trip to Jerusalem and spent some time with me. I met Greg, I met lots of other people on the same trip, Israelis and Palestinians. And I really had the good fortune of of kind of immersing myself in com- the complexity of it all first um, be- before I got into sort of the too uh, uh, in- in- to- too entrenched in kind of only one narrative or one point of view around it. Um, but but I was really looking, as I was leaving government and the Bush administration was ending, I was lo- looking for a way to to stay engaged and to even help others engage it differently. Um, and, and and that's when Greg came to DC and he had this idea for a a nonprofit that he was founding, um, and he let me in on it. And so we, we ended up launching it together in January of 2009, just as I was leaving government.
1: Wow. Thanks for, um, yeah, thanks for explaining some of your personal backstory and then the immersion of, of Telos. So I. I'm curious, and Greg, you kind of started explaining, as did you, Todd, the impact of immersive trips, and what you, you know, observed both in your own life, and then from others who would visit Israel-Palestine, you'd see them have these profound experiences, and kind of like paradigm-shifting moments, so can you go into that a bit more, just the, the impact of immersive trips, and, but then also, backing up a bit, can you describe just, tell us his overall approach to peacemaking?
2: Sure. I'm going to just share a little bit about, you know, the impact on me personally. I I grew up in the States, um, but my father uh, is Palestinian, was Palestinian. Sadly, he just um, passed two weeks ago, but he was born and raised um, outside of Bethlehem. And we'd lived in various parts of the Middle East when I was younger, mainly Syria, because um, my parents were archaeologists. Uh, but I had never actually been to Palestine until my early 20s. And I went um in my early 20s and was just welcomed. I have like hundreds of cousins, literally, um, outside of Bethlehem. And sort of this, you know, these are folks that I'd spoken to on um the phone, like you know, weekly um growing up, but um, and I'd met, you know, in Jordan and Syria sometimes, but I hadn't really I hadn't been there, and that experience for me was so just dis- disruptive in so many different ways and it just felt deeply implicating once i was there face to face once these theoretical issues were no longer theoretical and obviously they were deeply personal for me but i just i saw how i transformed and how i had this deep sense of e- implication that I could not just go back to my life as normal after that. I couldn't pretend that this was somewhere half a world away and that I was not responsible, especially coming from America and coming from a Christian background. you know, And we're so involved in this part of the world and we're authors of what happens on the ground there. And then later when I'd gone back um, you know, many years later and I was a negotiator and lawyer and all that... Um, then, you know, I, I come from a very progressive liberal background personally. Um, I I saw just, you know, in, in my job how now I was required to meet with, no offense, but folks like Todd. Todd comes from you know, Republican, evangelical Christian, like these, you know, these boxes that I'm not supposed to relate to, given the box that I come from in the States. And that was also a transformative experience for me. You know, I I know that most people are good people of goodwill, but really seeing people like Todd and a lot of people like Todd have these transformations and really wrestle from a space of integrity. What do I do with what I know now as a moral responsibility? That transformed me. And so, so much of our view on peacemaking is both sort of like, you know, systemic, it's holistic. It's like, yeah, there are these real broken systems in the world that affect entire groups of people, but it's also personal. It's what do I do? What's my responsibility? What's my core transformation? How do I live my values out? Um, Whether I'm Christian and I believe in a whole set of teachings and traditions from Jesus or whether I'm a secular person, like this personal transformation is critical to peacemaking. It's both internal, external, it's personal, it's communal. And so when we speak of peacemaking at Telos, we're speaking of a both-and it's this larger sense that the world does not have to be the way that it is. The world could actually be better. We could actually figure out if we really put our energies into it. It's not going to be easy, but how to really live out core values, which ennoble all human beings, which put human value front and center. To do that, we're going to need to go on deeply personal transformations, together to address these systemic problems and so the immersive experience is critical to that it's the opening but it's the beginning it's not the end
3: yeah i'd say um you know we we imagine that we are very rational beings and so if we have a strong opinion about something we we are sure it's because we've you know it's the right one because we've considered all the facts and this is the obvious and right one um and in reality that's that's not always very true. We're often, we, we, we make these deep these decisions about things that are really important, often um, based on more emotive or intuitive reasons, relationships, experiences we've had, and that helps shape how we think about and engage the world. And then we, then we look for the rationales that, that explain all that. And so that's why I think the experiential learning model we've created is really helpful. When you take a, 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 certainly a complicated issue or a polarizing one like Israel-Palestine or racial justice in America or any of those kinds of things, you, you rarely ever argue somebody into a new position. In fact, I would say you almost never do. Um, we, we rarely argue um, you know, someone to, to change their mind about something based on the facts. But people do change their mind. We all We all change our minds and we change our hearts. But often our hearts change before our minds change. Um, and the, and the one of the ways to to create the space and opportunity for heart change is through experiences and relationships through story experience and relationship and I think that's why the, the power of the of the trips that we ha- have created and lead is that we give people the opportunity to go on an experiential learning journey where they um, they you know they're, they're getting to meet people they're getting to hear stories and it opens up the possibility to think, differently about things and then we can then we can search for the 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 sort of data that kind of helps to explain that better rather than the other way around um so i I do think you know being in relationship with people different than me has been incredibly important in, in my own journey i had to have um a frame that allowed me to do it first. I'd say we, we all have ways that we try to make sense of the world we live in. They can be political ideologies, they can be theologies, you know, they can be other ways. There's we are, we're always looking for something to help make sense of the world. Um, and for me, that's why I think I always talk about as a Christian going on a different kind of faith journey, uh, and and in sort of understanding and embracing a theological frame that was that was really opened me up to a different way of thinking about both. People who are different, uh, how to engage those and what God is doing in the world and what his bigger story is and how, as Greg said, we're, you know, this is maybe, maybe this is not the way we're meant to be. We're not fated to live in this, uh, in, in these broken realities all the time and hope and transformation are actually possible. Redemption happens Even in limited scale, and we have a role to play in helping to participate in those things in the world. And so, having the frame really helped me, and then having a set of relationships and people who were willing to go with me, people like Greg, who were willing to, you know, to overlook the fact that 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 I to him could have just represented nothing but a but a problem and a problematic community for himself and his family and people um, in his world. Um, and the same has been true on, you know, some of the other issues work we work on just having people who've been willing to, to, uh, you know, to be in relationship with, with me as I go on, a, as, as I'm going on a journey has been in this, it's been, it's been all the difference in the world.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: That's just, a, I, yeah, sorry. I just do have a quick follow-up question to that. So, um, you both mentioned that, the the trips and what occurs during those trips that's that's just the beginning that's certainly not the end so can you speak to what happens just you know logistically practically on the back end um, kind of what the model is there
2: sure Um, we have three steps to our process um, and it's immerse train and act so the trip is the immersion component um, and that's important for all the reasons that we've mentioned, but it's really to get us on an ongoing, lifelong journey. But then what do we do on that journey? Um, once you're awakened to the fact that, oh, wow, I actually have responsibility and I have agency here. Um, a lot of us don't have the skill sets to um, you know, do certain things, whether it's um, to speak into our communities, political advocacy, which is p- part of it, but it's much bigger than that for for us. And so, the train component um, involves actually giving people the skill sets to uh, be able to undertake that, those next steps. And so, we have different programs for folks who are, um, you know, in positions of influence, like. Writers, pastors, whatnot. We have like you know these these cohort models where they they develop a lot of skill sets, or they have um, assistance from our team in writing books, making movies, giving sermons around peacemaking. Um, And then for a lot of folks, we have a program called The Table, which is like when you travel, our trips are cohort models. So if you go with a group of people, say from your community, your church or whatever, um, you'll stay in relationship with those folks afterwards. And then we have different curricula to help you study um, principles and practices of peacemaking, um, and then it, specific issues, so that you can get to the third step, which is action. Belief is empty, and in fact, I think it's problematic. Like if we just like you know reference ber- beliefs like Instagram memes, um, without actually changing our behavior, how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to those around us. And so, action is critical in peacemaking. Peacemaking is empty. It's just. A kumbaya intention, unless we actually work to embody what we say that we believe, and so we enable people on the back end to do that. I will say, you know, um, that that takes a variety of different forms. um, Again, from uh, you know public speaking and advocacy to political advocacy and whatnot. Uh, we'd, we've historically done a lot better at the the trip than sort of the train and the act model. Um, we have all sorts of webinars and the table programs and things like that, you know, in the train and the act model, and we're trying to get better there. But that's been like that. That's been the, the tough part for us, us. But one thing there that's been really helpful to us is during the pandemic, when we had to pause all our trips, Um, The team really sat back and and we really gave some deep thought to what we were doing. We never set out to be a travel agency. Um, And so we really strategized a lot, but we developed something that um, I'd love your listeners to pay some attention to. And it's called the principles and practices of peacemaking. We were trying to consolidate our, our learning down to, like, what is peacemaking? Is it kumbaya or is it something larger? We came up with a de- definition that uh, that we're really proud of, which is peacemaking is collaboration across lines of difference for the common good. And so this applies to a lot of scenarios. And we came up with six principles and six practices that really guide, like, how do we really do this in our own lives, in our communities? and in our world. And that document is kind of like a constitution for peacemakers of sorts. And now it's informing how we think about it, how we talk about it, the immerse model, the train model, the act model, and our whole goal 10 years from now is really to bring this robust and embodied form of peacemaking from the margins of society into the center.
0: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I know that, yeah. I've been on a few Telos trips, and so I <laughs> have some experience with the immersive piece, and then a little bit with the the train and the act piece coming back. And um, the peacemaking principles and practices are so um, thorough and holistic, and um, really gives such a great framework. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what are some of the like tangible changes or transformations that you all have seen in participants um, of trips, or even just of the telos tables, or kind of what sort of transformation has come out of that. That's leading towards the the end goal of what you're saying—not just singing kumbaya, but really fostering a holistic peace.
3: I mean, I I think I would even start with with my own transformation. I think when I when I started this work. It was the culmination of some work I'd been doing in government for, you know, trying to kind of better understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in particular and the, uh, the American role and, and sort of how, how it should be more predicated on conflict resolution and that sort of thing. So that was kind of where I'm, I'm coming from on this. Um, it was very Israel-Palestine specific. And when we, when we jumped into all this... We, you know, we 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 talked about and knew the fact that this was rooted in something that was bigger than just Israel-Palestine. These were universal principles at play here and all that. But it really was not until the full immersion into this that it really began to change how I saw other things as well. And I say that because there's been so many people that have been on trips with us. I, this is a very common thing that people say is that, you know, you didn't just give me a new way to see that conflict. You gave me a whole new set of glasses to see the world and I've come back and I see so many other things differently now. And it makes me want to think about how to engage these things differently, which is what ultimately led us to broaden our Mission statement, um, you know, maybe five years ago to being what it is now, which is not Israel-Palestine specific, but it's that we form communities of American peacemakers across lines of difference to bring healing to intractable conflict at home and abroad, and that's a big mouthful. But it's like it's it's a demonstration of the way in which this the these kinds of experiences and relationships really do give you a whole new way to see. And then a whole new way to engage and act in the world. And so there's a lot of examples about that. I'm sure Greg can give some some, per- some great ones, but I've just seen so many leaders who've had their lives transformed and done things very differently. So many individuals who've been on art, had these trip experiences, have, have you know, uh, they've written things, uh, you know, books and sermons and articles, uh, music. Uh, made films. They've they've l- literally moved from where they live in some comfortable life to somewhere else uh, as a result of of that. Um, just so much culture creation that's happened, so much advocacy and activism that's come out of it. It's really amazing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd add on to that. Like you know, we're we're seeing a whole you know, on Israel Palestine. We talk about you know this pro 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 posture, pro Israeli, pro Palestinian, pro peace. Support security, dignity, freedom, equality for all Palestinians and is, Israelis. That wasn't a thing, you know, years ago. And now, that you know, you go to the communities where we worked, a lot of people have that lens. You look at the polling now among young evangelicals, which is one group that. Um, uh, we've we've worked with and the the historic shifts on how they view is Israel Palestine and their larger faith and you know the role of peacemaking in, in their faith. And that's not all about us. I want to make sure like I think the last thing that we want to do is claim credit for all sorts of larger trends and works of so many different individuals. But that you know we had thousands of people come Couple thousand people come on these trips, see a different story, come home and tell a different story. Who speak to millions of people, and you know Todd mentioned books and films, like New York Times bestsellers, but also thousands of thousands of sermons and blogs and just conversations around the kitchen table. You know, those are just as impactful on a local level, and so that's what we've seen so much of. Um, you know, I'm thinking of one story that I I love to tell recently because it really kind of um, brings all of the different elements together from peacemaking to Israel Palestine, to what we do in our own personal transformation. And that's about a man named Mike Horn. Um, Mike uh, just retired from the Tempe police force uh, about a year ago. Um, he came with his church um, to an Israel Palestine pilgrimage um, maybe four or five years ago. And he had a real life transformation, just saw his world differently before the pandemic Uh, Mike came back with the elder board. He sat on the elder board of his church um, for one of our um, first US South American pilgrimages. And he, you know, he's a white police officer, evangelical Christian. He said, having been on the Israel Palestine trip, he knew what he had to do on this trip, and that was to listen. And so he had another life-changing transformation when he was exploring these issues here through the U.S. South and said, you know, after that trip that like, you know, if every cop in America saw what he saw, we would be a different and a much stronger and better nation. So he spent um, the pandemic literally raising tens of thousands of dollars to take fellow police officers on a similar journey. I got to accompany them um, in February. um, And... It was just extraordinary. I mean, you know, they met folks like Jerome Morgan in um, in New Orleans, who was wrongfully incarcerated at Angola State Prison for more than 20 years, picked cotton for four cents an hour for more than 20 years, six days a week, until he was just released a few years ago and went on to start this incredible nonprofit providing leadership skills um, to uh, young uh, Black uh, youth uh, in the community where he grew up in. So they would know not just how to grill, build great lives, but to avoid the system of mass incarceration, which is destroying so many communities around our country. And you know, these police officers had an incredible transformation as well. And so we see that like now he and Jeff Glover, the Tempe police chief, they're bringing back another group in September. They're bringing this model to law enforcement around the country. And so we see all of these things happening. We can't, Even track them all. But that's the beauty of this model of introducing people to each other and providing them a platform so we can really understand each other and realize that, yeah, we disagree on really profound things. I mean, Todd's still a conservative. I'm still a liberal. We even disagree on things around Israel Palestine. But we know that we're living into a story much larger than. And when we allow ourselves to live deeply into our values, to understand that we're partners, not adversaries in this reality, I believe and I know because we see it every single day that we can create a better, more just reality for all.
0: Wow,
1: thanks. Thank you for, for doing some storytelling there. And um, yeah, that story about Jerome is really impactful. So yeah. Um, I'm curious, you've, you've spoken a bit about the, the different um, groups of people or or the demographic, the general demographics that you serve or work with, you know, you've spoken to um, American evangelicalism a bit, Um, and this might be a strange question, but, and I don't really know how to phrase it, but I guess, like, who's the ideal candidate for um, engaging in peacemaking with, with Telos, or just generally with, um going with embarking on a peacemaking journey, you
2: know? Well, generally everyone. Um, you know, so like I think peacemaking, we don't we don't celebrate the right people in our culture, you know? We celebrate people who don't stand for anything except for some narcissistic view of themselves. Um I guess that is the definition of narcissism. Um <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like I, I think that like wouldn't it be amazing if we had a culture in which we celebrated all of these extraordinary change agents—the kinds of people that you meet on Telos trips—and we tried to emulate them, knowing that we're all going to fail. Like we're, you know, these these principles, like, are, are things that, you know, none of us can perfectly live out. We we know that, but imagine if that was our collective aspiration. In terms of Telos, like, we can't be everything to everyone. Um, You know, and so we're trying to work with the communities that we have connections to um, so that we're uniquely situated to um, work with um, that we believe will have the most impact into breathing um, these principles into our broader culture. So for us, you know, there's three kind of communities broadly conceived. One is faith um, and particularly um, Christians and, um, you know, quote unquote, evangelical Christians. Um, so I'm not sure what that term means anymore. We just wrote a whole sort of like series of things about that. but but generally, people who, you know, tend politically or theologically slightly conservative from non-denominational backgrounds. These folks are folks that our team is connected to, um not every member of our team, you know, um but we have a, a unique entree into and, Look, the world is not going to be our country is not going to be transformed by progressives, my tribe winning and defeating conservatives. Not gonna happen. We're in this together. Um, and if we want to have another civil war, which unfortunately is now a possibility, I think we all have a lot to lose together um as well. And so we need to create diverse communities. And we're uh we're a religious nation. So, you know, um, Protestantism, evangelicalism is a big part of that. Um, next is arts. Um, so we work a lot with artists. We, we need people telling different stories, stories that turn us towards each other instead of against each other. And that's, you know, that's critical. So that's a um, a big focus of our work. Um, it's obviously doesn't have the numbers of people, but we do a lot of work with storytellers, whether from faith backgrounds or not. And then the third little, you know, smaller piece of our, our work has involved um, entrepreneurship slash philanthropy, people who, you know, help build business and help also fund folks. Because, you know, um, Ali, Becca, I'm sure you've, in your work, you've engaged, I mean, I know you engage so many incredible change makers around the world. Like, the, the what's surprising to, I think, people when they enter this work is to see like, wow, there are tens and thousands of incredible people doing incredible things that we don't pay any attention to. Um, they need folks like us to help you know, give them platforms so their voices can be heard, to donate resources, all of these things. So it's cr- really critically important to work with the communities of, of folks like entrepreneurs, and philanthropists who can help them build their platforms, build their organizations, and provide those resources as well. So that's a a key part of our work. We want our folks to actually be resourced. Um, You know, it's really about providing platform to them, not to us.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, Man, I could ask so many more questions. I think I'm I'm really curious to hear, uh, you know, you have these um, principles and practices of peacemaking. And you have spoken a bit to how you know, regardless of context, like these hold true as important principles and practices of peacemaking. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I guess the question is, you know, as as things are shifting in Israel Palestine or um, you know wherever. These are being applied. Have you seen that? That I don't know. They they still resonate regardless of context or regardless of of what the situation might be.
3: Well, I mean, I think one of the things that, um, yeah, when 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 things are going in the wrong direction, as they can, as they often are, like in these conflict situations, particularly like in Israel Palestine right now, it's easy to just dismiss those who are doing the difficult work of peace and justice and reconciliation and healing and all those sorts of things, because it's obviously not having an immediate impact, right? In that way. And so they can be dismissed as being naive or foolish. Um, And and in reality, though, when you, when you're working, when you're doing this work, you get, what you begin to see is how deeply true it really is. And like, even, and sometimes you see it because you see, the fact that it's not being you know that people aren't living this out is why we are in the situation we're in it's that that is what is creating this and and when you have those kind of voices and and work and folks out there on the ground doing the doing the counter cultural thing and continuing to lean into it you see the power of that and you see what 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 it could be um one of the things that we're getting ready to do is take a trip in the American South, this new program that we've created to try to tell a more honest version of our own American story. And we're doing it with one of our partner organizations in Israel, Palestine, this group uh, of people called the Parents Circle, uh, who are people who've lost a direct family member in the conflict and have rejected the sort of idea of revenge and have committed themselves to doing the work of reconciliation. And they're, they're amazing folks. And they're some of our, you know, teachers and, all, and people that we've learned the most from in this work, I would say. And they're coming on this American journey uh, to learn about our own history of racial justice or injustice in America and the, and the American story. And we were having this little briefing call yesterday. Uh, I was with, with some of the Israelis and Palestinians who are part of this, who are part of this delegation. And as I was telling the story of why we do this work and how we're trying, how critical it is to learn to take the world as it is, but to listen to story and uh, and understand the importance of telling an honest story and a true story about how we got to where we are, that, 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 that truth is a real, is an important predicate for all of the the work that you have to do. You have to take the world as it is, and you have to be willing to engage the, the truth of the reality uh, of the history of how you got here. And it was just so obvious to them that even though I'm talking about this sort of principle and how it's playing out in a very specific context in the American story, they were immediately coming, jumping in with all the ways that yes, that's what we that's what we are trying to do here. It's what we've got to do here. It's what we're often not doing here. And it's so it's just so obvious that that is such a bedrock principle that we have to stand on. Well, that happens over and over again. You know, you just have there's these ways in which yeah, it's it because it's so messed up. Because we're not doing these things, because we're not living this way, and what if we did? And when we see people who are doing it, and you see the the way that that changes them and changes reality around them, then you're even more committed to this because it does feel like you're doing something incredibly true.
2: Yeah, I um, mean, you know, I I think on that um, since we've had the principles and practices, first they're not the Ten Commandments. These things are not <laughs> set in stone. This is this is us and our team you know, scouring research and all of our experience over years and so many other folks in the field and really trying to consolidate these learnings into a place where we can say, okay, like if we want to do peacemaking, that's consequential and not just like, oh, let's just all, you know, can't we all just get along type thing, which is not peacemaking. um, Then we really have to understand what this looks like. And what, what we found is I find like I'm consistently using these, um, practices I can't b- believe I'm going to share share this but um we had you know um I mentioned my dad just passed 2 weeks ago and in Ireland and generally there was you know incredibly positive experience during a very difficult time at this hospital but there was this one doctor who I think confused you know MD medical doctor with medical deity and he was just such this you know this negative personality during this terrible process, which, uh, you know, otherwise was really cared for and beautiful with all, you know, the the rest of the staff at this hospital. And, um, and I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is I We don't, I don't want this conflict right now when I'm just trying to be present with my dad during his final days. And so I went back to like some of the principles and practices, um, you know, listening to understand and some of the techniques that we teach, like mirroring and whatnot, and um, started actually reflecting everything back to this doctor who was dealing with his own stuff. I couldn't know what that was. And I didn't feel like I had to be responsible, but you know, in this moment, he's in charge of my dad and what happens at this moment and i want to be there and i started just like drawing on the actual principles and practices of peacemaking um and it helped actually diffuse this really fraught situation and i don't say that um you know as a self-aggrandizing story but it, it was just one of these things where you know now that we've done this work and i was like i don't know what to do in this situation I i'm at wit's end i'm not sleeping my dad's my best friend, like I'm losing him. Like, okay, but there was this thing that I could turn on, you know, turn to in this moment of conflict and these actionable skills and practices and employ them and then actually transform the situation. And I was, you know, and that was a a relief for me. And, you know, we have so many other stories, but that was just a deeply personal one in in this moment. Um, And, you know, I think we all feel at wit's end, you know, regardless of whether we're losing loved ones or not um, in this current fraught world where we don't know where it's headed. So it's beautiful to have like a bedrock of principles that ask the right questions and practices that give us some skills that aren't going to solve everything, but can help us relate um, to our, our fellow, you know, sojourners in this world with some integrity and give us the hope of some possibility of transformation.
0: Mm. Wow.
1: I really appreciate both of you, um, sharing and, and uh, yeah, Greg, I, I think that just really drives the point home that it's not just out here. Peacemaking isn't just out here, but it's, it's like right here. And I guess those gestures actually won't communicate on a podcast, but you know, it's, it's deeply, um, personal, as you said, as much as it is, um, you know, societal, cultural, we engage in peacemaking on those high levels, but then also interpersonally. So with that um and you also spoke to this a bit todd too so you know i'm definitely not telling you anything you don't know our audience will be um listening and and hearing this filtering it through their own unique past experiences and and where they are currently um and so i'm wondering for those who are mired in conflict or who who see conflict around them be it interpersonally or um you know on on more cultural societal levels, um, or yeah, thinking specifically about Israel, Palestine, whatever it may be that, you know, they're so mired in conflict, they can't see the hope or the potential for reconciliation, the impact of peacemaking. Um, what might you say to those individuals or what, what might be a question for them to think about, or what might be a next step?
3: Well, I mean, just going back to what you said about about the way in which this work is, you know, both personal and communal and external. Um, you know, a lot of us care about injustice because we we care about justice. A lot of us care because we are, you know, we are dealing with injustice in our lives or brokenness or, um, you know, or real conflict or you know bad situations, and it's. It's easy to become kind of a justice activist, but not do the internal work. And so you can, you know, you can be an advocate for justice, but also kind of be pretty self-righteous in the whole thing, you know, the good guys are and the bad guys are, and you're not doing the internal internal work as well. And it's all got to go together. It's and and that's why I one of the definitions I like to use for peacemaking, it's the way we pursue justice in the world that is oriented toward healing and, and reconciliation. And so, it's not just about doing justice; it's about doing it in a way that envisions a better future, a different reality, when we all, in which we all live differently together in a in a more equitable way, right? Um, but but it's also not just about not caring about justice. It's not. It's like you have to. It's it is the way we do ju- justice is central to all this. But it's also how we're trying what the, what we're envisioning for the future. Um, and one of the things that you that, you know when you're in these kind of situations is that it's. It's always easy to want to change somebody else, to change this system, to change this person. And my ability to change somebody else is pretty limited. My best ability is to change myself and the people in my sort of, you know, community, the people that I have influence with and influence over. And that's not to say I'm sh- I shouldn't be trying to change these larger unjust systems. I should, but what but but the path to changing those larger realities often is to do the internal work and to allow myself to be an agent of peace and healing in the world, uh, not just someone who's angrily crying out for you know about injustice, but somebody who's actually working to to correct injustices by being a person of healing in in in, in the world and allowing myself to. And so I so I have to do this really hard self interrogating work in my in my own heart and in my community that then allows me the sort of ability to be a healing agent and to be a participant in a a larger work and then that can your enemies can be transformed others can be transformed as you allow yourself to be transformed and so like these are hard things to get your head around especially when you're in the middle of something but it is the important work that we have to do i think if we want to um really uh, you know uh, really create the space for healing in the world is that we have to do both internal work even as we're doing the external work and that's why I that's why peacemaking has just made such a claim on on me over the, over these last several years, because that is such a it's it is a different way of engaging the world in some ways. Um and there are some, you know, there as Greg said, they're not the Ten Commandments, but there are some real real things that are true about that that we can
2: then kind of figure out, okay, how do I do that? Yeah. And that that is in fact the fifth practice of peacemaking, self interrogate and advocate. And so Ali, I'd like to approach this question from a place of self interrogation or to ask people to self interrogate. If they're asking this question, like why peacemaking? Why should I bother? It's so broken. I'm not going to change anything. Like where does that belief come from? You know, and where is that belief rooted? So one, is it only worthwhile to engage in peacemaking if we know we're going to win? Like, that's, that's not what peacemaking's about. Peacemakers are not here to be heroes. We're here to do the right thing. So is there a bit of our ego involved in this? Like, is it really that like, oh, well, I, you know, because think about it. Think about abolitionists against slavery. You know, um, there's a, a man, um, uh, I'm sure many listeners uh, may be familiar with Bartolome de las Casas, uh um, Jesuit monk who arrived... Um, in, you know, Haiti uh, on uh, just about 10 years after Columbus. And he was one of the first abolitionists and also the chronicler of what um, the Spaniards did um, in the quote unquote new world, which was just horrific. He he wrote all of the And so he was an early and he did did all of this when there was absolutely no chance of success. Just as early abolitionists here did it. They did it because it was the right thing to do. So peacemaking has a moral claim. And one of the moral claims we need to ask ourselves is why are we getting involved? Do we actually believe that we're all created equal? Do we believe if so, that that creates responsibility? If so, then why are we hesitant? Because we don't think we're going to see results in our lifetime. There is no chance that slavery would not have ended had abolitionists not Assumed responsibility when they knew they had zero chance of success, and in fact were risking their lives. We do it because it's the right thing to do, and um, you know, I I think also there there, there's another um, angle to this, which is like you know people will often describe peacemakers or peace, you know, making as naive. It's like oh well, that's not the way the world works. Wait a second. Do you think that we're going to create a more just world by bombing and destroying people by continuing to, you know, cage people based on who they are, which is what we do in so many parts of the world, or is that going to actually create more problems, breaking more people, creating more vi- Like we know that, in fact, the, you know, the the money and all the energy we invest into destroying people so that some people can have more power, is taking to us in a different direction from a world of mutual flourishing and justice. So it's Pushing us in the exact opposite direction. The folks who are naive are those who are saying that more, more war, more weaponry. You know, ignoring the possibility of a different way forward. Which doesn't mean that we're not self-interested beings who need to have our needs taken care of. It's just to say that maybe there is a different way to create a shared society in which more of us can have more agency, more f- freedom, and which more of us can know the ability to fully self-actualize ourselves. I, you know, I keep referencing my father, but he did say something once over breakfast, which really moved me and I've taken with me. And um, we were just having a conversation and talking about some of this stuff. And, you know, um, and he, he basically said, matter of factly, you know, quoted scripture, but with a little spin said, you know, to seek peace and pursue it. That's always the right thing to do, especially when it seems impossible nothing's going to change if we don't change and if we don't realize that like hey if this is what we really believe let's you know put our money where our mouth is and like start behaving differently as well
0: thank
1: you both so much beautifully said but but more importantly um yeah there there's just so much depth and truth to what to what you're saying it's not just empty words um or like some idyllic vision so you know, as we wrap, I just, I want to give you guys the final word and you've already said so much, but I, yeah, I wonder if there's, if there's anything else that, um, you want to, to mention or leave our audience with.
3: I just say to anybody out there that's listening that, that, you know, is trying to do this, live this way and do this kind of work and feels really lonely. Just be, (laughs) just realize that, that you're not alone in this, that there are, I mean, there are a lot of folks out there. Trying to live differently with their neighbors and others, Um, and you know, I've been I've been so gratified by the work y'all do at Peace Catalyst. But but there's so many other folks out there doing things in a similar spirit in a similar way, and that's the that's the good story. That you know that's that's not the headline story that we're going to read about, but that's that's the work that has to be done to stitch this. Back together again, um and we and and it, it is happening. And so, to people who are again interested and maybe want want to know more, plug in, plug in to what you guys are doing. PCI, be in touch with us at Telos, or find other other communities of people in your wherever you live that are trying to to figure this stuff out and live differently in the world. Um, and if and if there's no one doing it, then be the one that starts that. But but that's that's the work that's in front of us, and it really is critical. One of the things that you learn when you spend time in areas where conflict has uh, has you know gone to the place of of actual violence um, is that you know whatever it costs for us to hold this together in our own American experiment and story, now whatever it costs to hold together is going to be less than what it's going to cost if it ever slips out of the bounds of of just you know discourse and. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's worth the effort, but it's more than that. It is, it is, I think, absolutely the calling of our time and moment that we commit ourselves to finding ways to, to address you know, really important issues of justice and injustice in our country and at the same time uh, orient ourselves toward a different kind of future in which everybody can flourish, in which even people who are on opposite sides, people who see themselves as enemies can flourish in that, because it is, it is, it is worth the effort, and it's the, the cost is too great to, to bear to think about not doing that.
2: Ali, I want to echo everything that Todd's saying, obviously, because um, <laughs> it's so true. And I just I want to emphasize two things. One, you really are not alone. It feels like we are. But think about it. A couple decades ago, we used to have like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, like all these media outlets, and they had these opinions. And we thought that's what our neighbors thought. That wasn't true. That was a delusion. Now we have social media and we have the comments section. It's like five percent of people even comment. And so now we all think our neighbors are a bunch of like really polarized, hateful people. And that's actually not true. Most people out there, even those of us who come, you know, we have positions, we take political positions on controversial things, but we understand that other people are people of integrity too. We don't have a voice or a prominence in this culture, but we are there. You are there. We're not connecting to each other in the ways that we could. So forming community, you are not alone. You are here. And I also want to leave you with just one small word, which may word which may sound really, really silly, but it's absolutely true, and you'll recognize it to be true if you give it a little bit of thought. And that is that you know we all we're, we're left with this kind of narcissistic question about like oh can one person change the world? I want to submit to you that we all change. That's what it means to be alive. The fact that we have influence on the people around us, that we are influenced and that we have influence, all of us, on the ways that we extend or withhold love in any way. This is the very definition of life. So the question is not whether one person can change the world, because we all do, but how. So I want to leave you today with how are we going? Are we going to amplify these voices? Are we going to get out there? Even if we know that success in our lifetimes may feel impossible, but success in generations is impossible if we don't take up the mantle today. How are we going to change our world? How are we as individuals going to change? That's the question. It's not easy, but I guarantee you when you look out in this fraught, divided world that feels so dangerous and so hopeless, hope hope is something you do. Hope is a verb. When you act in these ways of hope, in the ways of the peacemaker, and you connect with other people, wrestling with really tough, seemingly impossible questions, but trying to do something about it, it transforms these fraught moments into moments that are often joyous, and it builds wonderful community. So I want to invite you into that. You are not alone and you certainly will not be alone if you decide to like, you know, cue into everything that you and Becca are doing at PCI and so many in the larger peacemaking community. There's a world out there waiting for you and waiting for your voice and waiting for you to help amplify the voices of so many wonderful people truly making this a beautiful place.
1: Thank you guys so much. Um, it, this has been such a wonderful conversation and I'm, I'm just so appreciative of, of you two, of, of Telos um, and yeah, of, of being part of this peacemaking community with you, so thank you so much.
3: It's been great being with you today. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org.